So I, this past week, um, I was up visiting with Ian's family for a late, late Christmas because we had to, we had to quarantine and get tests and do all the responsible stuff. Um, but on Saturday night before, I guess, let me look at the, I don't even know what the dates are anymore. Yeah. Saturday the 9th, um, I get an email from the treasurer at the, at my, the church that I serve the longest. And, uh, she says, can you resend me like the last couple emails you sent me? Because I, I somehow deleted them. And I was like, sure, sure. And so I, I send her those. Um, but I've been also getting um, a notification on my phone that somebody was trying to sign into the church email account from the location where the new pastor is at. And I was like, okay, clearly the new pastor is struggling with technology that's fine uh he is the church phone and the church phone should also pop up with these notifications so he should be able to handle it but i uh i send a message to the accountant at the church who's also doing tech stuff with them and just say hey i'm i got this email and these notifications sounds like they need help with something and i uh wanted to let you know that i'm not going to uh, but just in case like here's this um, and Ian very helpfully at this time informed me that, uh, her mother was dying, <laughs> which like, I knew that her mother had been sick and I knew her mother was in hospice care, but I, we had all thought that it was going to be like a month or so of, mm-hmm. but it, w- it was really coming to the end. And so, um, the church musician called me back, uh, and we're, we're friends. We've, we've talked well, uh, when I was there. And uh, she gave me like the update on her mom um, and explained the whole situation where she had said very specifically to the new pastor and to anybody who is going to be involved in filming the service for Sunday, like, hey, I can do it before Wednesday. Um, That's like, that's when I have time to do it. Uh, After that, I'm going to be with my mom because my mom is not doing well. Um, And so get to me by Wednesday and I can help you do it. Otherwise, I can't do it this week. And they're like, uh, she, I think she'd even offered like, Hey, if it comes to Saturday, like, let me know when I will try to plan time into my schedule to upload the service and send all this out. But outside of that, like I can, and they're like, no, no, go, go be with your mom. Go do this. It'll be fine. Um, and so, uh, she goes to be with her mom and come like I, Saturday night, seven, eight o'clock Saturday evening like both of us start getting this email and this notifications. Like this is when they're starting to try to upload the service. Like they have not planned and they're all, everybody in the congregation does not know, like, like none of them know how to do this. Despite the fact that I offered and even set up meetings with people to teach them, like, this is how you, these are the, this is what signing into the Gmail is going to look like. This is what signing into YouTube is going to look like. These are the steps. This is how you do this. Like I had planned to lay it out in like really clear detail. And everybody was like, no, 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 we don't, we don't need it. They just kind of wrote me off. And so then they're like calling and like harassing our accountant who's like with her mom on her deathbed on Saturday night to get things uploaded. Um, and it turns out the the treasurer, I had included her on an email with like all of the, I had sent this detailed email with like, these are all the passwords. This is what this platform is used for. This is like everything you need digitally. Uh, and these are like the links to all the help pages <laughs> for these things. Uh, and she had been copied on that because she was going to use MailChimp to send out prayer requests because she writes this, she's in charge of prayer requests. She's good at it. Um, and so she just needed the login information for everything because the previous pastor couldn't find it. I don't know. Um, so it ended up that they, they were trying to like upload the video. They filmed it on their phone and they're like, we'll just upload it to Facebook. And that wasn't working. And they couldn't figure out how to log into YouTube, all this kind of stuff. It was just a whole mess. And so the accountant and I ended up talking on the phone for like 45 minutes, just like catching up and talking through things. Um, and then her mom ended up dying, I think on on Sunday, like the next day. Um, and she was still getting calls from the church to be like, help us upload this, figure this out. And I like, one, I'm livid at all of these lay people who like knew this was coming, knew that like more than one person needed to know how to do this. And also kind of thought that I wasn't doing anything. And now they see like the hoops and the hurdles and how much like the online stuff takes up. I just, I am so 
angry at them for putting the accountant in this situation, especially after having not paid her over the summer when everybody else continued to pay their musicians, even when they weren't meeting um, and not wanting to pay her for the communications part of her job, which is now a huge part of her job and not wanting to like offer her a raise for this. Like, it's just not a good foot to start off on in the new year. And I like, I had to try, Ian had to like, hold me back. I was going to be like, listen, I'll just call him. I'll get it uploaded. Like, you don't worry about it. And Ian had to be like, no, it's not your job. And I'm like, Ian's right. Ian is right. Ian's right. Um, The, and like cherry on top of all this, the, one of my congregants who was in hospice care, who I went to visit in hospice care on the COVID ward before I left, he died on like New Year's Day. So like the day after I, I was no longer there. Um, and a, that's awful for a new pastor to have to come in. And I like told the new pastor, this is what the situation was. And I connected him with everything. Like I did, did my due diligence, but it's just, that is a bumpy transition. And I worked so hard for this not to be bumpy and like, nobody came alongside me for that um so I don't know if your transition was like that out of ministry but boy this has been a it's been a little bit of a nightmare yeah yeah that sounds terrible that's uh I'm so sorry for that uh there's really no excuse for the harassment Mm -hmm. there's never any excuse I stand by Ian's decision to hold you back and not not you just fix it because that is just other than the fact that it's not your job anymore. Like, like that also, you know, that doesn't help. That doesn't it rewards help. bad behavior. It rewards yeah. bad behavior. And it's, and it doesn't help at all with the transition. It's, it's, it just, uh, uh, it's a scapegoat. What, what does Renee Girard say? It's the scapegoat mechanism. It's catharsis that, that <laughs> alleviates the, the, the anxiety when really people just need to confront the anxiety and then realize, oh, wow, we actually just goofed, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, my transition was not quite like that. Um, I, there, I had already walked the new pastor through um, like Facebook updates and, and also our accompanist knew how, how it worked too because I had taught him and so there was some there was some other pieces sort of in play um, for my transition. Uh, the weirder thing is that I maybe it's not that weird is that I, I still get phone calls from different folks, mm. um, you know, from the congregation. Like the secretary will still call me from time to time and check in, which is which is fun, <laughs> I guess. Like like it's. My relationship with the secretary has has grown and has and has become much more healthy since I've left, and so that's <laughs> that's been good. She remembers me fondly, where at the time she hmm. didn't really like me. I remember that. That's that is what surprises me the most. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of kind of different. Did I tell you this was uh, more than a few weeks ago? Now I this has been a few months now. I I was taking a nap. And I woke up to a phone call from a number I didn't recognize, and it was her. Mm-hmm. Like it was a secretary, and uh, and we chatted for like an hour about mm. church and about things going on with her. And and uh, there was a time when I when I would find that really inappropriate, but having lived through uh, you know being a pastor and 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 transitioning out, I didn't really care. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't really care. I, I'm actually not hurting anybody, you know, by talking to, to different people. And I've since had a few conversations with other congregants. Um, and I'm not hurting anybody. I'm really not like I'm, I, I'm not, you know, I, I don't really like, like they should be talking to the new pastor. Yeah, but they're not. Yeah. There's that. So I don't, I don't really know what you want. Like, like, my presence is not going to help that. And my non-presence is not going to help that. So like, I don't really know. I should be connecting with the new guy. Well, I mean, they're not connecting with the new guy. So I don't really know what you want me to do. I, I wonder about that a lot. Um, because my, my suspicion in the time that I was at, at my, at the church that I was at the longest, um, 
my suspicion was that they were all talking to the previous pastor still mm. and that um, they were talking about me to the previous pastor. Um, and I, I think part of that is uh, me being a little bit paranoid and hurt by the whole situation. But um, there were, even though I did a lot of good pastoral care and met a lot of important pastoral care needs, um, they really a lot of important stuff I got like the dregs of and they wouldn't trust me with it and and there's a level to which like well they weren't ever like nobody comes to a pastor a new pastor and says like here's my whole life story you know like you built a relationship with a previous person and that's what makes them that's what makes Methodism really hard is that like you have these transitions so often how are you supposed to build that deep and important relationship with people um and so like i i would have paid money for them to have no future contact with the previous pastor i the church that i was at the longest because i was just i was sure that it was holding them back from trusting me with things Mm. um but at the same time like i i don't have all of the decades of pastoral experience that he has and i don't have the relationship that he has and Mm. Like, do you just let people not have the pastoral care that they need because their current pastor is not great at it or they're not connecting or whichever? Yeah. Yeah. No, th- that, those are really good questions and things to think about. I followed a pastor that was not super duper well liked. Mm. Um, some people did. Some people liked him. Um, but but he was not super duper well liked. And so our, some of our, and I don't know how super well liked the guy that you followed was, but like, um, I think in that way, maybe some of our, maybe our, our experiences in that way are a little different. I think that I understand. And for the most part, for the most part, agree with the itinerant system. Like I know why it's there. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, that's good. Like, I think that the point of re- constantly refreshing congregations and, and refreshing leadership and, and trying to resist like cults of personality and stuff like that, I think, are, I think that's super important and, and very good. That being said, this is obviously a system that no lay person was consulted with. Right. You know what I mean? Like no lay person was asked, what do you think of this system? You know, like, what do you, do you like this idea? Because, you know, they would tell you, no, like my church would tell, well, the church I served would tell you, no, it's a bad system because it, it removes people we like and it gives us people we don't like. And then we don't, we don't like that. Mm-hmm. And, and sure. I, I understand that, but at the same time, I think you touched on something important, Joe, too. Like, people are, don't just just show up and connect with you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, that's something you earn or it's something that after not only hard work on the pastor's part, but also an openness and hard work on the layperson's part, like, that happens. And once again, if you don't have... If, if you don't really have um, the perfect storm, right? Like if you don't have mm-hmm. everything working correctly, that can get really hairy and, and uh, not work at all, you know? Yeah. And I, um, I'm trying to like put into words my, this, this was always my struggle in the ordination process is like for no other job, do they ask you about your like spiritual well-being? Um, and while in like other jobs, like, especially if you're in a managerial position, like how you supervise and how you lead and how you interact with the people that you are supervising, that's a part of the job interview, I guess. But there's so much in the job of being a pastor that requires you to have if just astounding emotional intelligence and the ability to like build bonds quickly with people. Um, and, and that's something that uh, some people just have innately and some people really have to like learn to work to do. Um, and if you are sent into a situation where like you don't automatically have a level of like the standard level of buy-in, then you have to claw your way up. I mean, like, yeah, 
I, you talked a lot about your congregation kind of treating you like their their grandson, you know, like and, and not necessarily following you. And I I really came to realize that that's there was a lot of people like being very impressed with me and um, valuing some aspects of my ministry, uh, but there wasn't like there wasn't the, this person is somebody that I trust that I'm going to follow to lead me into difficult places. Um, and the church right now needs pastors who can lead people into difficult places. Like we live in a difficult time. It is difficult to be an honest to God disciple of Christ right now. And I, I, yeah, their generations of the church have not been trained for moments like these, but they don't make it any easier on their pastors who are trying to help them go forward. Right. I think you're right. Um, I, I said this before, but I, I think it, I think what we're saying needs to highlight it again. Like I think COVID and the current, not just COVID, but the current state of at least the Methodist church and pretty much all mainline churches demonstrates just how, um, how many of our pastors are untalented. Mm. Like, like that are, that are, that not only, not only do they, um, um, not only are they uh, uh, not trained well, you know, to, to handle some of this. I, I actually think that the last couple of years of seminary uh, um, uh, 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 of seminary graduates have been trained actually probably rather well for this, mm-hmm. um, but, but like trained well in, in all of these other capacities, right? Like the, uh, any, any semblance of mentorship system is it, you know, in our church, in our denomination is often a giant failure because we're being mentored with pastors who have no training in how to handle what things look like now, you know, have mm-hmm. no training in, in any of that. Like, like if you were to ask, if you were to pose your question to a mentor, you know, who is in their fifties or sixties, how do you get people to trust, to trust you to get buy-in? I think what's fairly likely is that they'll look at you and be like, people just do. What are you talking about? They don't, though. but they just don't. You're right. But, but they don't. That's not how it works. You know, that's 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 ridiculous. Um, and so I, I, I'm really struck by that. Like, wow, so many of our colleagues are are just not very good at this. You know, they're, they're just not not that we're super geniuses. I'm not trying to say that we're like we're like savant pastors. That's not that's not the thing. But like. They're not good at identifying the problems. They're not good at <clears throat> making connections with unchurched people. They're not good at, at the job that parts of the job that you must be good at to 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 lead the church well right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's what I think is is kind of startling. It's kind of startling to confront that, you know, in in some of our colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I do think that, um, I, it's just, there is a big generational shift away from church and we've watched it happen in terms of like numbers going down and all these kind of things, but we don't realize that, um, especially in terms of young clergy, young clergy, like if you, if you have made it this far in the, in the ordination process or in the process of being a pastor and you are in the millennial generation, you have had to really wrestle with why you're still a Christian, right? There's not, the assumption is no longer that you will be somebody who goes to church every Sunday. And so we have learned how to, um, how to reach out to those who uh, would never darken the doorstep of a church um, because the church has hurt them in this way or because a church has been irrelevant to them or they've seen the hypocrisy of Christians on the national stage. Um, and we like we are prepared for ministry on the ground as it is today and our churches are not. So we are ready to go to go out to do good work to build like really collaborative like missions in in areas and we would be ready to like jump on what your mom is doing in terms of her nonprofit like 
we would think that was great. Um, as evidenced by the fact that many of our podcast guests are just doing this, <laughs> going to do it uh, for a living. Um, and, and our churches are over here thinking, well, if we just get a better sound system, then the kids will come back to church. And it's such a disconnect in how churches, what church is for and who we should be reaching with church and, and how, how you just do church that it sounds like all of us kids have these newfangled ideas when really we are the ones who are prepared for the world around us and our churches are not. And I like, and, and my lady didn't want to be empowered. And that's something that really frustrates me is that I, I've trained many people. I have trained 10 people on how to set up a portable planetarium system from scratch. Like, like I have shown people how to use equipment and do shows. I taught a friend of mine, all of the planets of the solar system (laughs) at the beginning of her time working with the planetarium. And by the end of it, she could explain to you really clearly why Pluto isn't considered a planet, like the politics of the international astronomical union when that vote happened and like what it means to find planets around other stars. Like I am capable of empowering you to go and do the, the work that needs to be done in whatever the situation is and my people did not want that they wanted somebody to fix it for them and heather talked about this a little bit that like there are some churches that have been doing their own thing and they don't want a pastor to change it and there are some churches that have been trained to have a pastor who does it all and what we need right now are churches that are able to work in partnership with their pastors instead of this like unhealthy relationship that we've been having but all people don't want to change they don't want to do, and, and it's not, it's not in the um, kind of stereotypical, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, old people hate change kind of thing, even though that's at play. It's really that they're exhausted and they have been the ones who have been carrying the church forward for two decades, watching this mass exodus from the church. And like, they don't have it in them to do something new. Like, I, I, I know that we talk, uh, we talk about this a lot, but like my deep frustration is that we are sending young clergy into situations that are like, these are all catch 22s. Like there is, it is only by the grace of God that you are able to have um, really successful ministry in these places, even though they're right for it because the church is shooting itself in the foot left and right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. I think that's true. And um you know, as young clergy, once again, I, I think that I think that if we could speak with our system here, like I think that if district superintendents and bishops really upfront and, and had clear visions for what they're hoping to see happen in some of these churches, you know, churches mm-hmm. like that you and I served or 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 whatever, churches who are the same size as that or, or have similar problems, if if Bishops and district superintendents were able to have strong visions of what they were hoping from those churches, and there were real systems in place to materially and spiritually support young clergy, you know, throughout the conference. I think a lot of young clergy would be would be interested in projects like that. Mm-hmm. Like I really do. Like like I, I I really do. Like I legitimately think that you know like. I would. I love building stuff. Like I, I, I love um, having having a boss that I trust tell me this is the vision that we're hoping for this church. This is why we're sending you here. Um, we understand your needs. We, we get it. Here's how we're going to do our best to supply those needs to support you while you're doing this. We've gotten you connected to three other young clergy and, and, and this way here, here, and here, you're going to meet here, here, it, here it is. Mm-hmm. Accomplish this. I'd be like, great. You know, like, wow, cool. What a cool assignment, you know, but instead we know that's not what happens. We know that by and large, young clergy are, are sent to these, to, to the churches that can afford to pay them mm-hmm. with no guidance. Mm-hmm. And as long as we don't fuck it up, we'll get ordained and then we'll get to go to a better church. And that's really just how it is. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, but I think that that's very silly because mm-hmm. there, there really is no such thing as a better church. Right. You know, what, what, 
what that really is, is we get to go to a better town where we make more money and have more opportunities. That's really what that means. Um, and I think that's ridiculous because I think that there is a way of doing this that um, uh, uh, can really excite and empower young clergy to take on these roles, but it would require, um, frankly, it would require stuff of our hierarchy that it's just not, they're just not hired to do. Right. They're just not hired to do. And, and I'm, and I'm constantly being reminded of that from other people in my life and from just confronting this reality, like our hierarchy is not designed to do what I think it must do. It's not designed to sit around and, and gather intel on churches and pray and vision over churches that need it. You know, it's, it's not designed to theologically lead us. And so there, there's a very real possibility that you and I are more educated theologically than our bishops. That's a very real possibility, mm -hmm. you know, uh, they're not designed to lead us prophetically. That's not what that's, that's not the point. You know, the, the point is, is that these are administrators who are, who are successful when an annual conference is happy. Right. Right. And that's, uh, that's yeah. not what we need. Like the, the place that the world is at right now, like, yes, you should, the church should be a place of, comfort and renewal for you so that you can go out in the world and do the work that needs to be done. Uh, and, and I, and I believe that's really true. Just, just as any gathering of people who have a shared purpose, that should just be feeding you. Right. Like sure. when we would have in-person meetings for, um, the group that was going to, to take down the statue, um, or even like, even our like weekly meetings over zoom, like, except for the times that we were dealing with really intense conflict, these were meetings of renewal. Like we would get together, we would say, this is what we're doing. This is where we're going. Hey, how is everybody doing? Um, and then we would feel empowered to then go out and go do the work. Well, like that's, that's what fellowship is, you know, that's right. what church should be, but because the church is not going out and doing the work. Um, and because, well, that's, that's the real thing. The church is not going out and doing the work. Therefore, there's no real need for renewal in this way. It's just that like everything is dragging them down. Like the world is dragging people down and they think church should make me feel better, but they're missing this step in the middle that is like active living out of your faith. Like you are not expending energy. You're just taking in empty calories on Sunday because you feel that you have to. You're eating comfort food instead of getting the nourishment you need to go do work. Um, and that like, not, not to shame people's eating habits to use that analogy, but like that's, that's what it is, is that we are not, we are not using our church bodies the way they need to be used. And so they're just atrophying, right? They're just, right. it's just unhealthy. Um, and then we have people every, at every level who are like, well, why is the church so unha unhealthy on all of these levels? And it's because the church was um, in, in a fake sense of health it, when the United Methodist denomination was founded it, when, when the merger happened. And then from that, we've only seen the decline because there has been no real injection of the ministry and vision of Christ at, at any level. This is why at like annual conferences or at district meeting, like at every level, when we sit down and talk about our vision statements and things like that, um, like your mom read off the vision statement for her nonprofit and was like, this is what our vision is. This is like functionally how it is. Like, this is how this vision connects to us and who we are as people. And our churches are like, well, we have a vision statement. So like, what are we doing with it? And right. it's just, it's so disconnected from who they are and, and from what we should be doing. And, and so therefore nobody can cast a bold vision because everybody's too busy worried about the paperwork of everything. And I love paperwork, but like right now we're not doing anything we need to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is, this reminds me this, this, uh, as we kind of reflect on all of this and as we think about why is it that, that the church has so many decades of learned behavior that, mm. that is only killing it. Uh, it reminds me of a moment 
you know, I, I hate to always bring it back to David Bentley Hart, but I'll do it again. <laughs> do it. Uh, David Bentley Hart talks about in, in, in one of his books, you know, when Christianity, the Constantinian convergence, right? Like that, that's always, you know, Constantine fucks it up, right? And now, now Christianity is a state religion. Mm-hmm. And David Bentley Hart kind of draws this really subtle line where he's like, I, I, I don't want us to be fools, that it became possible that Rome could be overrun by Christians is a very good thing because prior to that, there were no free hospitals or, <laughs> you know, mm. like, like a number of stuff. He's like, but, but, but the, what really is as upsetting is when Christianity becomes a pillar of respectable society. Mm-hmm. He's like, that's really the difference. Like a state religion in which, uh, in which, clergy can hold emperors accountable is a really good thing mm-hmm. you know and david Bentley hart says that he's like that's a good thing we want that we want to there to be moral centers in in government that that even presidents must bow to you yeah. know that's a good thing and he tells a story of of jerome refusing to give uh, Eucharist to to the emperor because the emperor killed a hundred pagans. So he's mm-hmm. like, nope, you know, no no communion for you. And then that that censure caused the emperor to repent, you know, and and caused things to happen. That's a good thing. But when but I think that when when Hart says, you know, but the real problem is is when Christianity becomes a pillar of respectable society, in which wearing the clothes of Christianity means that you have checked a mark off on being respectful you know Mm -hmm. that's an issue that's when things are sort of robbed of its strength and and i think that that is what gives the appearance of health to the church yes all the way up until it's not really a part of respectable society anymore not Mm -hmm. really think of it this way particularly in 2021 now the people who stormed the capital are the christians waving jesus flags right right they ain't they're not respectable nobody's trying to be respectable you know nobody's trying to do that that's that's a totally different thing it has become more respectable to not do that and so like and maybe that's a good thing but like the that is the learned behavior of the church i think and and now that now that it's not being rewarded it become i think that's why so many church people not everybody, but so many church people have no energy and no strategy to do things differently. It's like, well, mm. you know, it's all become synonymous. Going to church and being a Christian has become synonymous with, you know, uh, 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 being a good citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what am I supposed to do? Like, like now that people aren't going to church, is anybody a good citizen? Like, like there, there's a whole host of questions that are asked um, because of those, that convergence. Uh, and I think that folks are just, just lack the energy, lack the grammar and lack the framework to be able, many of them to be able to kind of address it. I think that for a lot of, for, for some church people, even mainline church people who really buy the whole Jesus thing, I think they have more, ability to do that like i think that they they have more health and more more stuff in play to be able to learn how to do that i think about a number of the folks in in the church i served that changed over the course of my time with them to be able to go yeah of course of course it's more than that you know of course it's more than than being a business owner and and uh, having people wave at you as you go on a Sunday walk downtown, you know, like mm-hmm. of course it's more than that. But uh, I don't know. I, 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 there is the, the Capitol riot, I think will be a fascinating. Uh, uh, I'm curious to see how mainline churches uh, will continue to process the Capitol riot. Mm-hmm. Evangelicals already have a system of how to process it, mm-hmm. um, but I think a lot of mainline churches do not, and so I wonder, I wonder how many of them will process it. Like, will they see it as an aberration? Will they see it as 
this is what we've become, you know, will, will they, will they just hijack evangelical ways of processing and just continue to be pushed towards evangelicalism because that's the meaning making system from which they can see. Um, I know some of our colleagues and I'll get off of this. Some of our colleagues from seminary are already jumping on the, those writers are not true Christians stand, you know, yeah. thing. Which I go, which I go, of course they are. What are you talking about? Like, mm-hmm. like, of course they're Christians. Like that, that's get over it. You know, we're, we're, we're trapped with them. Like, like we've got to, that's why they're also real Americans. That's why we have to send, that's why we have to punish them. If I may, that's why there has to be consequences because they are both Christians and Americans. And so there needs to be consequences from both the church and from the nation. You know, if 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 we can move on with our lives. Yeah, I, I think all of that's really true. Um, I'm going to try to draw a through line with, with that as I've as I've been listening to you. So one of the things um, that kind of came along with um, being a being a respectable person means also being a, a Christian um, and that like respectable people in society are people who are at church, etc., um, and, and that ethos is that at some point, um, be, uh, being a Christian, it was the minimum that you needed to be in order to be an acceptable part of society. Um, so, I, I, and, and that wasn't like you had to just be a Christian, but being a Christian gave you a pass, right? Like mm-hmm. there is great Christian privilege. Um, and that's part of what allows uh, evangelicals and evangelicals on the national stage to claim the moral authority that they think they have um, is the fact that like, well, we all kind of agree that like, if you're a good church going person, you're a good person and we should respect you as a part of society. Um, and I think that for those people who are Christians who went to, uh, who went to the Capitol um, they see their Christianity as a shield from consequences, right? I'm not a Muslim. I'm not uh, insert anti-Semitic statement about Jews here. <laughs> you know, like I am, I'm a Christian and I am just doing what Christ called me to do. And isn't, um, isn't that why this nation was built on is uh, the good people are the Christians. The respectable people are the Christians. I'm just being the best Christian that I can be. Um, and I think that, that that lie needs to be seen as a lie and then kind of untangled from all of this. Is that like your Christianity in no way makes you more moral or a better person than anything else. It's made you a more acceptable person in the history of this country. But um, we, we now see how toxic that is in the end. Um, and, and I also think that... Um, the idea that Christianity is losing political power or political clout or losing like people uh, is probably the best thing that could happen for the church in the United States. Like for us to lose this power that we have been holding up as an idol, even if we don't really in our minds understand that it's an Mm -hmm. idol. Like I I think that um, the acceptance of Christianity as being the like respectable person's religion. Uh, I don't even think we understand how, how central that is to who we are um, and and how we function as Christians in the United States. But if we were to lose that, we would have to, we'd be forced to go back to basics and going back to basics and Christianity would just be better. Like we would just learn to care for people as we've always been called to care for people. We would just find ways to um, live out our faith in profound ways. We would, we would be get using the costly grace instead of the cheap grace, you know, like we would just be, there we go, bringing in, bringing in our Bonhoeffer. Um, we would just be doing something that was much more meaningful. We would choose to be Christians instead of just being Christians and, and making, Christ, bending Christianity to American will. Um, and I think that um, the, the other piece of this is that it was also very respectable to be a white supremacist 
over the course of the United States history. Um, mm-hmm. Not in the clan wearing way, clan hood wearing way, even though that that was respectable in communities. Um, but just to say that like, well, you know, uh, this land was savage before the Europeans came here to, uh, to settle it, uh, which are all terrible, horrible buzzwords, um, anti-indigenous buzzwords. Uh, so this land was terrible and savage before we came here. Um, and then we had to bring um, people from Africa here to work for us because we know so much better than they do. And like those those fundamental lies that we had to tell ourselves in order to perpetuate genocide and rape on people, um, like those lies are still just foundational to who we are. And Christianity is key to those lies. I mean, like the Christian myth and the Christian ethos of the colonizers and enslavers at that time, it, it, like there's, there's no untangling it. That's just there. Um, and it's be, been there for so long that we don't, we, uh, unless you know to look for it, you don't even see it. And so to have the white supremacist Christian on display in such a horrifying way at the Capitol really should make all of us look into our own hearts and say, where does that live in my heart? Because that person learned that in the same place that that I learned it too. And they've been radicalized and they've taken it to a different place than I would ever do. But that same lie is inside of me. It just did not find as fertile of a ground inside me and was not watered as it was for other people. Like this should all like should cause every Christian to pause and say, if I say I'm not a Christian like them, how does the world know it? You know, like, right. right. But, but because there are Christians in our churches and our mainline churches who, uh, if it had been convenient, would have also stormed to the Capitol. Um, and we're afraid of losing people in our churches. Then we don't ask those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and what I struggle with with that um, is, so there was, a, there was a Twitter thread yesterday morning that I saw from a young lady pastor, Methodist pastor, who is serving some rural churches. And she's like, she said something along the lines of, I like, I hear all the cries and calls for justice and this is absolutely right, but y'all have got to stop telling me what I must preach in my context. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh no, here we go. Um, And her main point was that, Uh, Sure, I could stand up in my pulpit and say white supremacy is a sin and white supremacy in our church led to this event at the Capitol and we have to condemn it. I could say all those things and I would feel very proud of myself for having said the right thing, but that would not have done anything in my congregation other than to alienate me from my congregation. So if I want to do long lasting racial justice work, if I want to do long lasting justice work in my congregation, I have to come at it from another angle. So like, don't tell me what to say. I'm going to say it in the way I'm going to do this work. It's just not going to look the way it will look in congregations that can hear you say those words. Um, and I have struggled so much with her little Twitter thread because like, I, on the one hand, I think she's absolutely right. Like she is doing the work uh, in small groups and other places outside of the pulpit of uh, confronting white supremacy as she sees it. And she knows that it's going to be slow work in this rural community, in these rural communities. And she knows that like that's, that is the level at which this is gonna have to happen if she's not going to alienate all of her people. But there's a part there. There is a real angry person inside of me that says, "Well, they deserve to be alienated." Like if you watch that and you say, "This is fine," then like I don't want to be in worship with you. I don't want to be in communion with you. Like if 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 staying in communion with you means that I have to say that white supremacy isn't the worst thing in the world, then I don't I that I don't value my relationship with you that much you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, I don't know what to do with that, um, with that feeling inside of me. Um, 
Because I think that being a faithful, I honestly and truly think that being a faithful Christian in this moment means that you see what happened at the Capitol, you see the role that Christianity played in it, and you say, like, I am ashamed. I am ashamed that people that hold to the to the the same religion we we claim the same religion somebody who uh would sit down beside me in church on a sunday that they would feel empowered to do this and and not have uh, any guilt at all whatsoever because of it um and then to not face any consequences from their church because of it i don't want to be in a church like that and and i don't know why I should continue to want to try to be like, I don't, I don't understand why I still feel like the need to care for my congregation after I'm gone from it. Like I, it would be much better for me to just completely walk away from the church and say, you know, like those people aren't me and it's clearly too corrupt to fix. So I'm going to go do my own thing. Um, like, that would just be the healthiest, the healthiest thing to do would be to break from it all and say, this is somebody else's responsibility. And yet I still feel like there is a a responsibility laid upon me to like help Christians be more like Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I have to go really, really soon, but I I just want to respond to that. This is what you're describing. I want to affirm because I, I think, I think any, a pastor who is really doing their best um, to, to, to hold all of this together feels that same struggle that you feel. And, mm-hmm. and, and I, and I think I, I can definitely get behind it. This is one of the reasons why Joe, when we have talked at different times in this podcast, why I, I always question the sermon time, mm-hmm. the sermon moment as the primary moment where there's, this kind of language, right? Like I, I can only talk about my experience as a pastor. And so I'll, so I'll stick with really briefly, like my people were not dumb. They knew what I thought mm-hmm. and they knew where my heart was at and they knew who I'd vote for and why I'd vote for them. Like they knew all of that. And they knew that because I wasn't a coward and I would tell them when they'd ask, but they, but, but if the only time anybody ever encountered me was at a sermon they might not know that Mm -hmm. at least the political side they would know that i cared very deeply about the poor about looking for jesus in the face of the poor they would know that i cared deeply about love and justice and the oppressed they would know they would know all of that but they wouldn't know they but but i i didn't sit there and 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 every sermon and made it extremely clear. Charlottesville, I did. Charlottesville, I made that very clear. Um, but they would know those, everybody right on, who were on the right and on the left knew what I thought, you know, because they'd come to my office and I tell them or they'd come to Bible study and I tell them, right. And, and that's a reflection of why I think, of where of of what I think the role of the sermon is supposed to be. Like, I think the role of the sermon is actually really simple, you know, in, in a lot of ways. The role of the sermon is to declare the cross and the resurrection. Mm. You know, and 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 uh and you do that in whatever uh scripture you've got it in. It doesn't mean you ignore what's in the scripture, it doesn't mean that the topics don't change, you know. The, I, I preached on a lot of things, but at the end of the day, I preached on the cross and the resurrection and 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 its call to make it make us and the world more holy. Which meant that I talked about racism and justice and, and all of that, but that's what the sermon was. Um and that's just me. That's just me. Um, which I understand, but like, I don't know. I, I think that, that I read, I also read that Twitter thread that, you know, as mm-hmm. well as you posted it. And, and I think that that's correct. You know, if I, if I go all out, then that affects the way I can do my job as their pastor. And my job as their pastor is to hold their hands when they're dying and to care and baptize their children and to, and to care about them in a, in a huge number of ways. And, and sure, I guess you can just say 
fuck them. I guess we can just say that. I guess we can. Um, but but uh, okay, then fuck them. Yeah, like then it's the end of the you know? conversation. Then yeah. that's the end. You know. Okay. See you. You know. Um, fuck it all. You know. Uh, uh, the I have to go, but let me say this this last, this final thing, and this will be the final thing. Like that was the deal I made with my church when it came to LGBTQ folks. The guy that I replaced spent ten years of his time there preaching about Freemasonry and how queers are going to hell. Mm-hmm. That's the answer. And so when I showed up, I, the, all of them uh, who are both conservative and liberal were like, we don't want to hear anything more about gay people. We really don't like we've spent, we spent 10 years and that's all we've heard. Like, mm-hmm. like, and it showed, and frankly, it showed it, it was demonstrable, you know, when I got there that, that these are people who hadn't heard from the apostle Paul in a long time that hadn't heard from, from mm-hmm. anybody, you know? And, and so, and so the deal I made with them is this, I was like, okay, I have a lot of strong opinions about how beloved I think LGBTQ folks are and, and how, how it is necessary that they be fully included in the life of the church. I will not bring that forward in my sermon. I think that anybody who listens to me preach would be able to figure out what I think, but I will not name that in the sermon, but I will name that in every other chance I can, you know, Mm -hmm. as it comes up. And, uh, Prophets and priests, right? Isn't that on the thing? Wasn't that on the on the thread? Maybe, yeah, yeah. You know that that preachers are are not just um, prophets. Yeah. We have a job that that is that is different, and in some ways, if if preachers were just prophets, in some ways it would be easier. Yeah. Um, because then we didn't we wouldn't actually have to care about our ability to care for our people mm-hmm. yeah I, I i think you're i think you're right i and i think that's i think that's kind of the key struggle with being a pastor is that um your your job is to care for these people um and, and to, to care about like the spiritual well-being of these people and, and the emotional well-being and the physical well-being. Um, like, like, like you said a couple episodes ago, like we're the last general practitioners. We, are care, we care about the whole, the whole body of these people and the community that they're in. And we are constantly, because the United States is so unhealthy, because so many of our communities are unhealthy, we are constantly torn by um, our need to care for our people and our need to challenge our people because things have to change. And mm. it is difficult to, um, to call people to change in a way that isn't going to make them uncomfortable in a way that isn't going to make them feel that they aren't cared for anymore because we just, we don't know how to do hard things anymore. Um, yeah. And, and that's not going to get fixed in, in a short amount of time it's something that like requires engendering an an entire new culture in churches Mm -hmm. um and if you feel called to it god bless you i uh just did not have what i needed to do in order to do that that's okay okay. well you want to sign us off for what is i'm sure a maxi sewed mini (laughs) sewed of course of course friends this has been another mini sewed of what the hell is a pastor we are spanx reebok and the dude and we will see you next time